Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Father's, and in his holy angels. Good morning. Glenn has mentioned a time or two that he feels that he has an advantage at times uh, when, when preaching, because he, the songs that are sung, you know, he, he's aware of what the topic is, and, and I admit, knowing that this morning, after after talking with Brother Gary this week, the songs that were chosen, they fit in perfectly with what I want to talk about this morning. And it is, it is a slight advantage, I'll admit that. I appreciate the songs that he led, um, the prayer that was prayed, and all things. If you want to, stay in Luke chapter 9 right there. That was just read there by Brother Hancock. That's where we're going to stay this morning, in Luke chapter 9. And we're going to spend virtually all our time there in verse 23, to be honest with you. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 has always been a a favorite passage of mine, if you were to pick some, I suppose. There's a few, not that it has any more value than any others, but there's some that just, for me, and, and perhaps for you too, just stand out for particular reasons, whatever they may be. And, and Luke 9.23 has always been that to me. He said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me thought about that verse at times and, and what it means. It's easy to read it, and sometimes I may read it, and, and I know what's being said there, but I don't necessarily know how to explain it. And as I thought through that verse, and I thought, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to take up our cross? What's that phrase mean? And so this morning, that's what I want to talk about. What does it mean to take up our cross? And, and I want to use the remainder of that verse in Luke nine twenty three to hopefully answer that question. It takes a variety of different things from us to, to in order to take up our cross. We see people all the time, right, that wear a cross, and some they wear it on, on some sort of jewelry, on a necklace. Some people have a cross tattooed on them. Some people wear it on T-shirts, a number of different things. They carry it around, so to speak, regularly. But what, what does it actually mean to carry it? Because I think a lot of the times the people who, who carry these things around, I'm not knocking anyone who does that. There may be some here that do that, and, and, and that's perfectly, a perfectly fine thing to do. But what does it mean to do that? Because, again, a lot of times in Christianity, we, we say things, we don't fully understand them. It's important that we have a barrier and we have an understanding of what, of what we're doing. So let's look at this. What does it mean to take up our cross? Number one, we have to deny self. We have to deny self. Anyone who's talked to me recently probably has heard me harp on this point. I'll be honest with you, I've had many conversations with Keith. It's probably best that he's, I think, preaching elsewhere this morning because he and I have talked about it numerous, numerous times. But this, I think, to me at least, I think it's the greatest 
struggle our current society has, this rise of, of the self, of my desires, of what I want, we see this so prevalent happening. So often, people within the world, they're looking to figure out who they are. We see phrases like that. I feel the most like myself in this particular instance. Or I desire to figure, I'm just trying to be the best version of myself. And we see all sorts of things. There's a, there's a market for this, right? There's Enneagram tests, I think that's what they're called, in which you, you figure these things out, and it's going to kind of explain your personality and who you are. And, and I, I don't want to knock those. I'm not saying that they're bad things to do. There's nothing wrong with any of that type of stuff. But oftentimes I think people are searching for who I am. And I think sometimes we spend so much time focusing on who I am that we forget whose we are to be. We should focus more on the who we belong to rather than the who we are. We're told so often to do what makes us happy. Right? You see that happen so often. Do what makes you happy. We're told that if, if it feels true to you, then it is true. Facts and, and things of that nature are kind of suspect. They're, they're hard to put down. There is no moral subjective truth. Our feelings are the moral guide that we have. And this is the society that, again, we're seeing it grow more and more. And the fact of the matter is, scripturally, it's just not true. God doesn't really care, I'm here to tell you, about our happiness if it comes in contradiction with our salvation. He doesn't. People see God as a loving God and a, and a merciful God, and, and they say these things all the time. God would want me to be happy. I do this, you know, and it makes me happy, and I know that, I know that God would want me to be happy. But God doesn't really care about our happiness if it's in contradiction with our salvation. He doesn't. God wants us to be saved. Now, those that are in Christ should be, certainly should be happy. Should be the happiest people in the world. They have hope. No one else has that except those that are in Christ. No one else has hope but them. We, as Christians, should be the happiest people. But I can't search for happiness in places that it's not there. We see this happen in worship services. People go and they'll say, hey, I'm looking for a new place to worship and I'm looking for a place that has, you know, good music and great volunteer opportunities and a number of different things, right? I'm looking for things that I will enjoy just because I've neglected to understand what worship is about. It's not about me. It's not about the things that I like. It's about honoring and praising God. We get our hierarchy of thinking so backwards sometimes. There was, and I mentioned this uh, a few months or so ago when I taught one of the adult classes here, but there was a book by a former Navy SEAL named Mike Hayes, and it was called Never Enough. That was the name of the book, and it goes into a number of different things, but there was something in there that I liked, and he said in their particular little SEAL team, they, they talked about the hierarchy of thinking that they tried to live by, and it was team, teammates, and then self. That's how they operate. Within their, in order to be successful as, you know, one of their SEAL teams that they were, they, they think of the team first, and then they think of their teammates, and then they worry about themselves. And I got to thinking about that, and I, I thought about it, how we relay it to our, to our Christianity. And our hierarchy of thinking in our Christianity should be God, church, self. Right, when I'm going to make a decision, or I'm gonna, is this pleasing to God? That should be the first question that I ask. Will it bring reproach upon the church? Because there's some things that may not necessarily be, dis be displeasing to God, but perception is reality, and the perception perhaps could bring reproach upon the church, and I would want to avoid that. And then and only then would I ask the question, does it, does it make me happy? Is this good for me? 
But sadly, in our society, we flip this on its head oftentimes, and we ask these in reverse order. We ask the question, does this make me happy? Is this what I want? And if the answer is yes, we stop asking all other questions. If the answer is yes, well, then it's what I should do. It'll make me happy, and it's what I should do. All right? This completely contradicts what we read in Luke 9.23. It completely contradicts the, the commands that we're given because denying ourselves means that what we want doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because we don't live for ourselves. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15. What does it say there? It says, And he died for all, that those who should live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We don't live, I don't live for me. The choices that I make, they're not about me anymore. They shouldn't be. As a Christian, the choices that I make shouldn't be about me. Do they make God happy? Are they in line with his will? Those are the questions that I should be asking myself before doing things in life. Now, again, that's not to say that you can't go enjoy things, but at the same time, the hierarchy of thinking. Is this pleasing to God? Does it bring reproach upon the church? Well, okay, yes or yes or, okay, then, yeah, it makes me happy. I think I'll do it. We read in Galatians 2 and verse 20, perhaps one of my favorite verses throughout Scripture, all right, that it, and, it, and it reads there, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I always like how Paul says that there, the life which I now live, meaning I'm going I'm to start differently. I was living a life previously. That life previously, who was that for? Well, that was for me. The life which I now live, however, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Think about that claim, and this is why I love Galatians 2.20 so much. Think about the claim that you're making when we say, Christ lives in me. And then we go out and we live, live in the world. And we act, and we speak, and we do. Would it be evident, based off how we live, that Christ lives within us? Would that be something that someone would say, oh, wow, really, they, they claim... They claim Christ lives within them. That's that's a little shocking based off the things that I know that they do and say and participate in. That's a bold claim to make, to say, it's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Do we show that? Now, does that mean we're perfect? No. No, it doesn't, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we should strive for that. All of our sin, if you think about this, All of our sin comes from our own selfish desires. Look at 1 John 2.16. We know this verse, right? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is what? It's not of the Father, but of the world. Think about those three sins right there. All of them are selfish. You have the lust of the flesh. It will feel good to me. You have the lust of the eyes. I see it. I want it. The pride of life. It will make me look good. All of these things are me and I. They're selfish. We read in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that every man sins, or each one is tempted, rather, when he is drawn away by what? His own desires. The things that I want. The things that make me happy. The things that I think I deserve, even. I'm drawn away by my own desires and enticed. And then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. 
If we're going to claim to take up our cross and follow Christ, we're going to carry that cross with us daily, we've got to understand what that means. It means we have to deny ourselves. And in our current society, that's a tall order. Because everyone out there around us will tell us that's backwards. You need to do what makes you happy. You need to do what's pleasing to you. You need to look out for you. But that's not what taking up our cross means. It means we need to do what makes God happy. We need to do what's in accordance with his will. We need to live a life that shows that he's living within us. We need to live a life that is for him who died for us and rose again. We have to deny ourselves. Number two, what does it mean to take up our cross? It has to be done daily. We read that right there in Luke 9, 23. There's a few different accounts within the Gospels of this particular verse. I've always liked Luke's the best because it adds that word. It adds daily. What does that mean? Well, we can read in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. It's constant. It never stops. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be, in, be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering intention. There is no off-season to this. Right? I, I, I coach athletics. I've always been a part of athletics. You've got an in-season and you've got an off-season. Times in which you're doing things, the off-season, you can be more lax. You can take time off. Christianity has no off-season. It's constant. It's every day. It's all the time. We can't say, well, we're fired up about this particular thing, and then we take some time off for a little while. You know, I've, I've been getting tired lately doing a lot of different things. It's constant. We have to show up every day and be a doer. We read in James chapter 1, verses 22, beginning in verse 22, that we're to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. We have to be a doer of the work. We've got to go out and do that. I can't just talk about it. I can't just read it and say, boy, that sounds real good. There was a story I heard years ago, and whether or not this is still a thing, I'm, I'm not sure. I think there's been some changes over time, but the Virginia Tech football team, I always liked this story, had a, had a prize, so to speak, weekly. And again, they've had different coaches since then. They may not do this anymore, but once upon a time, of course, they're in Virginia, over in Blacksburg, Virginia. It's a very you know, blue-collar type of town. And they would have this old metal lunch pail, this lunchbox, like an old metal construction coal miner's lunchbox. And it had a, a VT, their logo, painted on the side of it there. And every week, the player who, he was a worker. He got, he got after it, and he was, just, he was the hardest worker out there. He would, get that, he would get that lunchbox for the week, put it in his locker. It was kind of the badge of honor that they had. It showed the blue-collar type of mindset of somebody who was willing to go to work, right, willing to get after it. I always, always liked that concept. As, as, as Christians, we have to be willing to get our hands dirty sometimes, to, to do some things. Again, society, we talk about that, this, hey, relax, take it easy. It's a daily commitment. Taking up our cross and following Christ is a daily, constant commitment. 
And it takes that commitment. We continue reading on in Luke chapter 9, going on to the end of the chapter, and you read in verse 62. It says, what there, no man putting his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. I've got to have full-on commitment. Legend has it, and again, I haven't necessarily verified this fact, but legend has it that when the Spanish conquistadors and Hernan Cortes and the Spanish conquistadors came down to what is modern-day Mexico, and they were planning to conquer the Aztecs, that they, they showed up on their ships from Spain, and they got off, and Cortes, the leader of this outfit, right, he looked at his men, and he told them, hey, burn all of our ships. Legend has that happened. Again, I haven't verified this fact. And of course, the men are a little confused, but this is our ride home. This is, this is how we got here. It's a long swim to Spain. I don't think we're going to be able to make that journey back. He tells them to burn the ships. They set the ships on fire. They haven't, there is no retreat. It is 100% commitment to what we're doing. Either we're going to conquer these people here or we'll die here. These are our two options. But we are fully and 100% committed. And as Christians, can, can we say the same thing in our daily walk with Christ? Have we, have we burned the ships to the previous? We've read that in Luke 9, 62. No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. I've I got to burn those ships. They've got to be gone. I, I have no way of retreat or, you know what, I don't know if this is really working out, so I think I'll go back in a different time period, different part of my life previously where things were better. We've got to come to a certain realization, and, and I mentioned this this past Wednesday night, I was talking with our college group in, in our Bible class hour. And I mentioned, I don't know when exactly it was for me. I'll be honest. Some of you may have had a similar situation happen to you in your life. I, I want to assume it was probably around the time that I was in college. Again, I, I couldn't tell you the exact moment. I, I, there wasn't an aha moment. There wasn't a road to Damascus type of situation. But I came to a realization at some point in time, and again, I think it was right around my college years, that nothing else mattered but, but this, but God's word. I came to that realization, and again, I don't, I don't know exactly when the time happened, but I came to that realization that this was all that mattered. And again, that's not to, to toot my own horn or, or say anything special about me. I'm sure many of you have had that same thought at some point in time, whether it was a, a time period in your life in which it just clicked and you thought, man, I've got I've to make a change. Or whether or not you just became, continue to grow in the word and came to more maturity over time and you come to a decision and a conclusion, hopefully. And if you haven't had that moment, I hope you do. That nothing else matters but this. Nothing else that the world has to offer. No amount of success, worldly success. No amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of wealth matters in comparison to this. And if you can come to that realization it's so much easier to make the daily commitment. It's so much easier to burn the ships of my old life because none of it, none of it matters anymore. None of it matters anymore. This is it. And I've thought that numerous times since then. There'll be times in, in life. And, and one, I'll tell you, uh, last November, we were sitting again with our college group. We were at our retreat there at Naoti, and we're sitting there, and we're in the lodge, and the lights are off, and we're singing. So you're just sitting there, kind of in a dark room, you can't see anyone, you can't make out anything, you just hear voices singing praise unto God. And I had that thought then, nothing else matters but this. This is it. This is all that matters in life. Us sitting here, 
worshiping, praising, honoring God. If you can make that, it's easy to burn the ships. It's easy to fully commit. This is it. I don't care. I'm tempted to do this. I'm out. It's not to mention, that's not to say temptation's not there. That's not to say it won't still nag us. But we see this. If we were to go around, walk around town, take a poll, hey, would you like to go to heaven? Let's go take a poll of people. Let's ask them that question. We're here in North Alabama. I'm going to say the majority of them would say, yeah, yes. Yes, I would. I would like to go to heaven. I'm going to say 99%, maybe. It may be a clean hundred. Would say, yes, they would like to go to heaven. But are we doing what it takes to get there? Do our actions meet our expectations? I've got expectations. I'd like to go to heaven. Do our actions meet that? That's a daily thing. Everyone says they want to go to heaven. Everyone says, oh, I love God. But do our actions meet our expectations? It's got to be more than just the big stuff, so to speak. Air quote, big stuff, right? I've heard it a time or two. I've talked to people, and man, they're talking about this upcoming mission trip they're going on, and they are fired up. They're so excited. And then in the same breath, they said they didn't know if they were going to make it, you know, to a Wednesday night Bible study because they had some things to do. You know, it can't be the big stuff. The fun, that's, that's easy to commit to that stuff, man. It's awesome. It's big. It's exciting. It's got to be everything. It's a daily, constant grind and commitment. And it is a grind. I'm not going to lie to you. It is. It's not easy to do. It's not like I'm a Christian and I'll just daily commit and this is a walk, this is a walk in the park. It's not a problem at all. We live in a world that tells us we're wrong. We live in a world in which we don't fit in. We live in a world in which we deny, supposed to, deny ourselves and do what God asks us to do. But we, once we put our hand to that plow, we can't look back. I can't wish I was somewhere else. Because I'm moving towards the prize of what I want to do. And in order to do that, I've got to take up my cross. Have to. Have to. Number three, follow me, Christ tells us there in Luke 9, 23. If any man will come up for me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We have to imitate Christ. We have to imitate his perfect example. We know what it means to imitate. We see it all the time. You see our children do it? We've started this new thing at my house. My, my son loves baseball. Some of you know that. Contrary to popular belief, I have not forced this upon him. I know people think I coach baseball, and therefore I must have forced this. I have not at all, I promise you. He enjoys it. Granted, he didn't have much of a chance because he's around it 24-7. It's on the television, and he comes to games in which I coach. So he didn't have much of a choice in the matter, but I haven't forced it upon him, I promise. But he loves it. And we'll sit there every now and then at night, and we'll have the, I'll have the Braves on TV, and I'll notice over time that he's gotten up, and he's already gotten his bath, and he's got his pajamas on, he's ready for bed, and he'll pick up his little foam bat, the one that he's allowed to have in the house. And he'll pick it up, and I'll notice he'll be watching television, and he'll sit there in his stance, watching the guys hit, and then they'll swing, and he'll swing. And if they miss it, or they foul it off, he stays right where he's at. But if they hit it, then he clearly also hit it, and he puts his bat down, and he takes off down the hallway. He's imitating them. He'll do the same thing from time to time. They'll be pitching on the mound, and he'll sit there, and he'll get set up, and he'll check the imaginary runners, and then he'll throw his ball at the, at the wall. It's a softball. He's allowed to have it. He imitates. We see children do this all the time. They imitate so many different things. 
We see children imitate us all the time. We should want them to imitate us in good things. If we're going to take up our cross, we have to imitate Christ. And I know people say, well, man, it's a tall order. Christ was perfect. You know, and and Scripture says that I'm not perfect. Romans 3.23 says, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8 says, if a man says he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in it. So, I mean, how can I truly imitate Christ? There was a quote by Robert Browning, the poet and author, that said at one point in time, a man's reach should exceed his grasp. Or what is heaven for? I should be striving for something just because I tell myself, well, that's not attainable. I can't be perfect. We have to understand that by following his steps, we obtain perfection through him. We look at John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Christ, of course, here is praying in the garden. Moments, perhaps mere hours before, or minutes, hours, we're not sure, before his arrest. And he prays for himself there in the beginning of 17. I love John 17. And then he prays for his disciples. But then there at the end of John 17, he prays for us. He prays for the believers. He prays for those, as we'll see, who believe, although they have not seen. And beginning in verse 20, this is what he says. I do not pray for these alone, these being his his disciples, apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be made, listen to this, they be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. They may be made perfect. How can we be made perfect? We're made perfect through Christ. We're made perfect through Christ, his grace that, that we have, the gift that he gave us. Well, how can we obtain that grace? Well, he died for all, we know that, John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He died for everyone. He's given us the gift of his grace. How do we obtain it? Well, we have to be in him. We know in Ephesians 2, 8, right? For you're saved by grace, what? Through faith. What is that faith? Well, it's a, it's a living, it's an active faith. It requires action, just like all faith ever has in Scripture. It's required action. No faith has ever just been... I believe God exists. And, and that's enough to contact his grace. No, that's never been the case. Throughout any history of time, that's never been the case. We have to be willing to follow him. In 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Notice what it says here at the end. He who says he abides in him ought also to walk just as he walked. To follow after him. We've seen this. You've ever gone to the beach or a sandy area or a very dirty area and you see these footprints that you see within the sand. And if you've ever seen a a father or an older adult and he walks and he makes these footprints and if you've ever seen a small child that follows after and they try to feel these footprints and their feet are much smaller, they don't fill them up and they try to reach out and they try to put their feet in the same places. Christ has left these footprints for us. 
We have to try to walk in them. Now, will we fill them up as he did? No, we won't. But we gain this perfection through his grace in him. How do we do that? By taking up our cross and following him. Because that means something. That that means it requires us to do certain things. Louis Kerala, I think is how you say his name, is is a strength coach. For, for Georgia Tech University, for football team. I follow some of these things. I'm, I, I'm, I'm in athletics, so I follow along with some of these things and look to see some things and, and learn some stuff. And he had a quote years ago that I thought was fascinating. I loved it from an athletic standpoint. And he said this, here's what you should know about winning before you chase it. He was talking to his team. He said, winning is not loyal to you. It doesn't care about you. Winning doesn't care how sore you are. Winning doesn't care how much sleep you get. Winning doesn't care how hard you work at times. Sometimes a guy doesn't outwork you and he still wins. It isn't fair. Sometimes there's no justice. Winning requires all of you and then more and it promises you nothing. It's a master of creating fear and doubt in your mind. It causes setback after setback. So the question is about winning. Are you willing to sprint when the distance is unknown? And why chase this thing called winning? Because the only thing that's guaranteed in life if you don't chase it is losing. It's an interesting quote. Athletically, man, it's fantastic. I love it. It's wonderful. It's true. I mean, the measures of success in an athletic event, you can learn a lot of things from athletics. I certainly have throughout the time of my life. But I mean, the measure of success is winning and losing. As a coach, you're going to keep your job if you win, and you won't keep your job if you lose. As a player, you're not very successful if you lose, and you're successful if you win. That's the mark of success. But it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. If it was, everyone would do it. Winning's hard. It doesn't care about you. It doesn't care that, man, I put in all this extra time. I I deserve it. It doesn't matter. And I think about this, and I compare it to to our Christian lives. Chasing after this perfection that that Christ left me. You say, boy, that's hard to do. Trying to imitate him, to follow him. It's not easy. It's not. It's not easy. And sometimes you're ridiculed for it. Sometimes people really don't care what you have to say. Sometimes you could be shunned or lose friends. It's not easy to do that. We can say that flippantly. That's hard to do. Lose contact with family members. So why chase this mark that is Christ and the perfection that is in Christ? Why try to imitate him like that? Because the only thing in life that we're guaranteed if we don't Imitate after him is an eternity without him. That's all we're guaranteed. If we don't pursue him, if we don't look to imitate and follow him, we're guaranteed one thing, and it's an eternity without him. We have to deny ourselves. We have to daily work and be a doer. We have to follow after him. That's what it means to take up our cross. We read in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 38, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord all your, uh, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This right here, Matthew 22, this is the secret to life. It is. I'm here to tell you. I know people like to use that word, that phrase, this is the secret to life. Following requires what? Following requires we take up our cross. I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, 
with all my mind. A lot of people say in the world that they love God. But do they do the things that prove that? And I don't, I don't have to prove it to you necessarily, but I have to prove it to him. I've got to take up my cross. I've got to deny myself. I've got to do so daily. I've got to follow after him. It's the secret to life. It requires that we do all of those things in life. If we're going to say we love him, we can't claim to follow the greatest command and refuse to take up our cross. And to do so, well, we've got to hear his word. We've got to study it. We've got to read it. We've got to believe that it is the truth, because it is. It is the infallible, totally inspired word of God. We've got to repent of, of our past sins that we've had, and repentance is it's a whole lot more than just saying, I'm sorry. We've, there's got to be a change. There's got to be a change in life. Judas, Judas, if you remember, he was sorry. Judas felt bad. He took those 30 pieces of silver and he threw them at their feet. He said, I don't want this. Take this back from me. He was sorry. Very. Truthfully. But he didn't repent. Why? Because he didn't turn back to God. What if he would have? I love that account. I've shared it with you before. What if Judas, throwing those pieces of silver back at the Romans' feet, would have sprinted back to Christ as he hung on the cross, screaming along the way. It's it's an amazing scene to envision, isn't it? Screaming along the way. I'm so sorry. I've messed up. And Christ sees him on the cross. Maybe soldiers have to cut him down. In which he he can't even get there because he's running and of course he's not just going to let him run all the way up there. And they cut him down. Maybe they kill him in the process of his repentance. We'd remember Judas much differently, wouldn't we? The martyr of repentance, maybe. But that's not what happened. Judas was sorry. He threw the pieces of silver at the Romans' feet, and then he did what? He went out and hung himself. He didn't go back to God. That's what repentance is. It's a turning back to Christ. It's a change. We've got to confess that Christ is indeed the Son of God, the one who died upon that cross that we're supposed to take up and carry daily, constantly. And we have to be baptized into Christ, for that's where we receive his grace. As we raise up to walk in newness of life, Romans 6. We have to do all of these things. We know true success is living your life and going to heaven. Our children here know that. That's what true success is. A lot of people search for success in a number of different places. But it can only be found in taking up our cross. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis mentions this, and this is a book, oddly enough, not about separation of marriage, but the separation of man at the end of time. And he says, and I've loved this quote, there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously, constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it's opened. Of course, he's mentioning Matthew 7, 7 through 8. The book goes on to explain that the gates of hell, are, they're locked from the inside. And that's true. No one who truly seeks after Christ, truly, truthfully, no one will just say it. We don't just talk about it. We don't just pretend. I don't just put on a front. Truly seeks out. I, I won't miss it. 
because I take up my cross daily and I follow after him. And he's going to make sure I don't miss it. Because I do all of those things. But that's what it requires. It requires me doing that daily. I can't put on this front. I can't be somebody to you on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and then be a different person Monday through Saturday. I've got to be that person Monday through Saturday. I've got to make them wonder the, what I'm, where I'm going on Sunday. Because maybe they want a little piece of that. Because the gospel is life-changing. It is. He's shared it with us. He died on the cross so that we could have an opportunity to come in contact with him and his blood through the baptism that he set forth. It's a way for us to know him. Which is a fascinating thing to be able to know our God. To truly know him. Not just know of him. People know of people all the time, don't they? You know of a lot of people. But you truly know some people. Well, God created a way for us to truly know him. Philippians 3.10. We can know him in his death, in the fellowship of his suffering, in his resurrection. How? How can we know? I'm not, I wasn't there. I didn't share that experience with him. Well, he's created a way for me to. He's created a way for me to share that experience with him. I'll be baptized into him and raised up to walk in newness of life. Perhaps you're asking the question this morning that so many have asked. What must I do to be saved? And the answer has always been the same and it's still the same now. Repent and be baptized for the mission of sins. Acts 2.38. So then I ask you this question. As Christ asked the lame man, granted he was asking for physical healing, but he asked us the same for spiritual. Do you want to be healed if you, if you need it? You have the opportunity to. For those of you that perhaps have taken up your cross before and, and you've, you've put it down, quit following after him daily, you've quit doing the things, you, you stopped denying self, you started caring a whole lot more about yourself than you did about God. It's time to pick it back up again. You can. Pick it back up again and don't put it down. It's worth it, I assure you. I haven't been there, but I know. Because I know what true success is, and I know how it's described. And if there's some this morning that they've never, you've never picked it up, you didn't really know what it meant, what does it mean to pick it up? Well, maybe you've said you've loved God, and maybe you'd really do. But there's more than just saying it. I've got to pick up my cross daily. I've got to deny myself. I've got I to follow after him. And those aren't always easy things to do. But again, they're worth it. I know they are. Because he's told me they are, and I believe it. If anyone has any need this morning, won't you come? It's together we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, Please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.